Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hey everybody, great to see you. Shalom Fellowship. I hope everything's going well. I hope you're doing well. I, I, do you guys get ex- as excited as I do about the chats? I just, Norway, Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, Africa, Israel, Canada, London, Croatia, Idaho. From Croatia to Idaho. I mean, what's going on here? That's a miracle. That's what it is. It's just an amazing, amazing thing. (laughs) It's Sunday. It's a new week. We're on our way to a new year. I feel like our first year, last year, we were practicing. And now we're like diving into this year together. It's for real. And I just want to let you all know what's going on in the Gimpel family really quick. Um, My oldest daughter, Eden, she is 11, just came back positive for COVID. She didn't feel very good for a couple of days, nothing too serious, a headache and a fever. We got her tested in order that she wouldn't be able to spread it over everyone. But over Shabbat, she lost her sense of smell, but she's feeling much better now. So Baruch Hashem, thank God she's doing good. It's just been a little bit chaotic, kind of putting her in her room and separating everyone and school's about to start. And what does that mean? And, you know, whatever happens, you know, sometimes we forget and sometimes we need to be reminded, never take anything for granted. Every day with our loved ones is a gift. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembering, the day of memory. And we need to be reminded ever so often about so many things. I know a lot of people are focused on what they want, but sometimes it's important to remember what we already have and how blessed we already are. And, you know, the sages of Israel say that in prayer, um, when you pray with tears, it opens up the gates to heaven. But when you pray out of gratitude, it removes the gates altogether. And so just let's take this time and remember how fortunate we are and uh, we're together and to be able to dedicate this time to learning, to preparing, to growing, to carving out our own path toward a life of blessing and to bring so many people from so many places all around the world at the same time in prayer is such a unique opportunity that only our generation, and as far as I know, maybe only our fellowship is just, I just don't know anything like this in Israel. It's so special. And so let's just dedicate this time uh, with one heart, with one land, with one God, Hashem, King of the universe. Thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us together to start off our week together, to start off our year together, crowning you as King in our life. We kneel before you and we kneel before nothing else. Your good is our aim, and your will is our desire. May the sound of the shofar straighten out our hearts, wake us up, and call us to duty. We come here every Sunday because we are waiting on your calling and preparing for the time when we are needed most. Bless us this Elul. Take us away from fear and constraints and bless us with a time of growth and expansion and hope. Guide us and our loved ones on your path and protect us. Protect us with your light. Bless every family in this fellowship and their loved ones. Help them flourish this year into the people you created us all to be. Amen. So um, just before we start this session, which is going to be dedicated to preparing for Rosh Hashanah, the new year, Yom Truah, the day of the chauffeur blessed, Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance, Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. This holiday has so many names. Um, it might have more names than any other holiday. It's like such a deep holiday. Like each name reveals another layer, another dimension to the day. 
But before we go deep into Rosh Hashanah, I want to invite Arya Bramwitz to share some Torah with us direct from the Parsha, because the Parsha is our constant guide every week. It's our anchor. And I was alone on the mountain this Shabbat, so I didn't have a chance to learn with Ari. So I'm really curious as to what he learned and what he's going to teach us today uh, to help us get prepared for the great days ahead. So Ari, take it away. Shalom, my friends. Shalom, shalom. Can you hear me? Yes. Great, great. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to see you. Good to see all of you. As always, I'm looking through the faces and looking at the chats, and it's I'm just as excited as Jeremy. It puts me in the best place to see all of you and to be together. And it's just good to be to, uh, together again. And thank you, before I start off, for sharing with me throughout the week. Um, I was happy to hear that you all felt as blessed about our prayer session last week as I did. And I encourage you to keep the prayers coming. Keep them coming. Uh, send them to me either by email or WhatsApp. I forward them all immediately to uh, the group I have with Jeremy, just me and Jeremy, just the two of us. So he's able to pray immediately right then. And so not only will I continue to pray for you right there on the spot, but God willing, we will pray together again in our next prayer session next week at the end of the fellowship. I've heard some of your ideas about how to move around with this prayer session and make it even better, and I'm excited to implement that. I don't know if we'll do it this coming week or the time afterwards. But anyways, I'm excited about that, and I feel like it's a holy and blessed undertaking. Um, so as you will hear from Jeremy, Hashem has been shaking up our mountain out here on the Judean frontier. You'll hear what, about one of the big, great developments from Jeremy. I don't want to ruin it for him, although I did have an evil inclination to do so, but I'm not going to do it. But I wanted to sh share with you about a yeshiva that came out to the farm this past Wednesday. And this was the second year that this yeshiva came out to the farm. And, uh, and their rabbi told me that after their trip here, that the students were so profoundly impacted by their time at the farm that there was nothing like it. He told me that three of them canceled their trips back to America and signed up to get drafted in the Israeli army and make their lives here in Israel. Um, you know, I've heard this uh, before. I've experienced it before more times than I can tell you. And I have to say, every time I hear even one, I really have a voice in my head that's like, I can die now. That type of impact on the Jewish people on the world, even just one, is enough for me. And I know Jeremy feels the same. We've had the experiences together, and it's so fulfilling. And um, so they said that they wanted to stay here, these students, and it was their time at the farm. They told him directly that's why they decided to make that move. And, you know, Jeremy and I have been on our mission together to spread the truth of Israel with the world, meaning uh, the meaning of, of Israel, a purpose, the joy the vitality of life in Israel. We've been on this mission now for nearly 20 years, however crazy that is, Jeremy. It's been nearly 20 years. I never thought I'd be a guy that could even say that. And listen, there's nowhere we wouldn't go. There's no one we wouldn't speak to. Hot hotel rooms in the 15th floor of the King's Hotel, wherever it was, we went there, we would do it. There's nowhere we wouldn't go. And I really feel in retrospect that we were truly faithful to our mission, even if it didn't often feel like we knew where it was all going. And I cannot say that about many other parts of my life, that I've been really faithful and true in every single way. I think Jeremy possibly can, but not this guy. But anyways, I try. I'm not trying to knock myself. I'm just saying that that stood out. It was like a, a religious conviction. Like I've told you, when I'm called and they say there's nine guys that are praying and they need a tenth, Literally, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm going to go there and to do that. Anyways, 
I feel like when Hashem sent us out to this mountain, he was like, he, I felt like he was saying, okay, you two, you've proven your dedication and your loyalty, and now I'm going to switch out your slingshot for a nuclear weapon, a nuclear weapon of holiness, that is. The, the impact of our message through the vessel of this holy mountain that I'm sitting in right now, and thank you, Hashem, that the internet is strong enough that you can apparently all hear me, the impact through the vessel of this mountain is so powerful that it's difficult to describe in words. And that's why often I feel like I shouldn't even try. You just have to experience it for yourself. So this yeshiva of American students were spending their gap year in Israel. The gap year is the year between high school ending and college beginning. And, uh, and they came out to the farm this past Wednesday. And as with so many of the groups, as the bus was pulling up, I whisper the prayer, Hashem, please open my lips and allow my mouth to express your praises. And then we begin our journey together. And I just let the words flow. And, you know, sometimes some of the words are the same as they are on other tours, as you can imagine, when you're giving a tour. But it feels new each time. And I express them with a new zeal each time because even if some of the words are the same, they're being expressed to completely different people at a different time in a different situation. And it makes it a whole different experience. Anyways, back to this past Wednesday, I saw in the eyes of these students when they were out here that they were just, they were like alive. They were lit up. And I saw maybe one or two of these smartphones come out, which is pretty rare. That's exceptional. You know how it is with people, not only adults, but kids that are raised with these smartphones. There's one moment of downtime, one moment of their mind wandering, of being bored, and they've got it right in front of them. Anyways, we, we went to the overlook to see the caves where David hid from Saul and where he composed the Psalms, the Tehillim. We saw the vineyards upon which Amos prophesied. We went to the house of prayer and we prayed and we talked to Hashem. And we went to the oasis ecological pool where I taught them about how this unique and unparalleled manifestation of the words of Isaiah were coming to life right here in our pool, as opposed to anywhere else in Israel. It's the greatest manifestation of this prophecy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're a new member to the fellowship. We'll, I'm sure we'll share it again soon, if not when you come here. But anyways, we sat down before their final experiential class in Heit Bodedut. Um, you know, Heit Bodedut, just how to talk to Hashem, and I opened up with them. And I told them my honest thoughts about the direction America is heading in now from the deepest place, that I feel strongly that there's no future for Jews in America. A lot of my friends, even Jeremy sometimes says, I should really try to tone it back and get it down. And I understand where you're coming from. But, I, you know, because it's not, I'm not just talking about the rampant assimilation of how American Jews are losing their children in droves to the toxic poison being taught on college campuses that they're paying for but how I really believe that in the years to come, American Jews will be increasingly at risk physically. I mean, their physical safety, that America is clearly an empire in decline. And when things go bad for a country as a whole, they go twice as bad for the Jews. Now, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm always conflicted about whether to go there, because on some level, I feel like it's beneath the dignity of the Holy Land for people to run here out of fear. But rather, they should run here out of love and desire, but rarely can I overcome the impulse to also, at the very end, at least in some way, share about this, the warning, 
because in my mind, it's just so real and so impending that I wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I didn't. Ultimately, I concluded my plea by referencing one of the last verses in this week's Torah portion in which Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, he's detailing the journey that led the nation of Israel to this moment. And he details their very first battle. We've talked about this before. Who did they fight in their very first battle? They fought against the people of Cheshbon, which means in Hebrew, calculations. Cheshbon is calculations. That was the name of the nation, Sichon, the king of Cheshbon. And our sages say that the lesson here is that when it comes to entering the land of Israel, when it comes to meriting to live in the land, the first thing you need to conquer is calculations. Because, you know, I've been told that when it comes to moving to Israel versus staying in the comfortable, affluent flesh pots of America, if you start making the pros and the cons list, the battle is already over. You need to defeat the calculations. You need to say, I'm doing this because it's right and because it's true and because God is with me. Right. Like Joshua said to Caleb, they didn't, like Joshua and Caleb said to the nation. Right? They didn't start by addressing all of the points that the other spies made and refuting them and debating them. They simply said, we can do it. Their bread in our hands, ki nuchala. We can do it because we can do it. And that's it. Now, the reason I say I've been told it's a losing battle is because when I make the pros and the cons list, it still comes out far in favor of Israel. But I think maybe I'm a little bit off the deep end. And when you're seeing things from the perspective of the exile, your comfort zone, your career, your family, your life, you know, it's just not an easy move. So I told these young yeshiva students that they are at a fork in the road on their journeys. And now this is the time to do it. This is the time to pull the trigger that their great grandchildren would look back at their family tree and point to them and say, this person right here, my great, great grandfather, Jonathan Rosenberg or whatever your name is, that is where the exile ended. And they were the ones that made the courageous move and planted my family's roots in the Holy Land. But then an interesting thing happened. One of the rabbis that were on this tour that was lit up, I mean, he's a, he's a beloved friend of mine who I both like and respect. He came over to me and he, th- he said he thinks that I may have been mistaken. That while he agrees with what I said in principle, that in reality it may have been misleading. That many people do take the plunge and make Aliyah and it isn't a flaming success. That they struggle seriously, like seriously struggle. They struggle with the language, and the culture, even just putting food on the table, that I'm making it seem too rosy and too easy. I don't know if you can hear my dog. He's going nuts outside right now. You have to forgive me, but that's the hashtag farm life security measures. But anyways, he said I was was making things too easy. So I was reflecting on his words over Shabbat, and I really thought about it, particularly when reading the Torah portion. And it's interesting because Rabbi Sachs points out that the blessings and the curses in this week's Torah portion are repeated twice. Once in the portion of Bechukotai, in, in the book of Vayikra in Leviticus, and once in this week's Torah portion of Dvarim, in Deuteronomy. And while they're similar, the reason given for the curses is very different. In Leviticus, God says the curses will transpire if the nation rejects his decree and abhors his laws, meaning that they actively rebel against him. In Deuteronomy, it says that the curses will happen because you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness in the midst of all of your abundance. So those are two different things. Rebellion and the other one is you didn't serve God 
with joy, with joy and gladness in the midst of the abundance. So Rabbi Sachs points out that the greatest challenge we have is success, is comfort, is abundance. And that when I realize, and that's when I realized that that one of the great flaws in the faith of many people out there is the following. Because I'll tell you, my friend wasn't the first one that said this point to me. I've heard it many times. And so where's the flaw? I think that many of these American Jews I meet, religious God-fearing Jews, I always wonder why they don't make Aliyah when it's a central directive in the Torah and it's so foundational of what it is to be a Jew and we've been praying for it for thousands of years and now we can do it and they're not doing it. And I think that at least one perspective is that they do believe in God, but they don't necessarily believe that God is good. They think that they will make Aliyah and they'll suffer, that it may be painful and that would, and that would be a bad thing. And it's true. Many people make Aliyah and they suffer. Real suffering, finances, family, culture. There are endless potential downfalls. But if you truly believe in Hashem and, and you believe Hashem is good, well, then that suffering isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. We may not be able to understand it right now at this moment, but the suffering is a good thing. As a matter of fact, the sages tell us that there are three things you acquire through suffering, and one of them is the land of Israel that you're actually acquiring your portion of the land through suffering. But our Torah portion this week takes it even further. It tells us that one of the greatest causes of spiritual downfall, one of the greatest barriers between us and Hashem is comfort. From the comforts of the exile, Rabbi Sachs pointed out that the greatest place for downfall isn't challenges or pain or difficulty or adversity. It's affluence, it's decadence, and it's comfort. All right, my friends, I'm going too far here. I'm going too long. And I don't know if you can hear me over my dog going nuts right now. But when I say this message, I'm speaking more to myself than I am to you. When I say that we're not in this world to be comfortable, we're put in this world to transcend our comfort zones, to voluntarily and willingly do God's will, to come close to him, to try to serve him. Hashem, Please bless all of us, my friends here, me, my family, all of us in this fellowship during these valuable days leading up to Rosh Hashanah to find the comforts which are preventing us from truly serving you with our whole hearts. We should merit the strength to voluntarily sacrifice these comforts on the altar of our own hearts and our own lives. And by doing so, may we merit to bring the blessings of this Torah portion to rain down on ourselves, on our families, on Israel, and on the entire world. I love you all so much. Many blessings to all of you from our mountaintop here in Judea. Shalom, shalom. Thank you, Ari. I love that. I really agree with that. I think that kind of the comfort, it's like blocking, killing the king of calculations. It's not about calculations. It's about having a listening heart. And I think that that speaks deeply to the work that we're all trying to do on Rosh Hashanah. But before we get to that, back by popular demand, Tehillah Gimpel has some Torah for all of us. You know, Tehillah is my chavruta. She's my study partner. I learn so much from her. And I'm just so grateful that she carves out time each week for our fellowship. And with Eden catching Corona, it's just been a bit hectic with our other kids. But as always, she's just a beacon of light and we need light in these times. So here is Tehillah for us. Hey guys, I hope you're all well. 
we've been busy as usual. I received a bunch of emails, especially about the women's session. I haven't yet gotten to answer them because Eden caught COVID and Akiva just started a high school Torah Academy. So we've had our hands full juggling everything, but I promise to try to get back to everyone as soon as I can. Uh, another thing that's happened recently, I'm sure you guys know, was there was a terrible forest fire started in uh, the Jerusalem forest, seemingly uh, looks like by terrorists that burned down like unimaginably huge amounts of nature in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And along with all that damage, my good friends uh, Shoshana and Micha Harari had their entire harp gallery destroyed, literally their entire life's work. They've dedicated their lives as Levites to building the most incredible handmade biblical harps following the exact Talmudic instructions and descriptions to make the perfect instruments to serve in the third temple. I met Shoshana back in 1999. She basically treated me as a daughter. I spent so much time with her. I was privileged to work in the gallery with her. Um, so much of everything that I am, I owe to Shoshana. She taught me about healthy eating, natural healing. She introduced me for the first time in my life to righteous people among the nations um, who used to come into the gallery. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I didn't know what that was about. And that really was a big thing for me on my journey. And the fact that we even had our hearts open to establishing an organic farm was totally her influence. So the Hararis are the real, like the real, they're the real thing. They have dedicated their lives towards redemption and the third temple and all that was lost in the fire. They weren't able to even get insurance because they live near a forest. And there've been so many terrorist fires in the past couple of years that no one wants to insure a factory making things out of wood near a forest. How crazy is that, that in Israel, you can't build biblical harps. You can't even get insurance because there's so much terrorist arson. It's crazy. But anyway, helping them is a huge mitzvah. We're going to try to help them as much as we can. And um, hopefully we'll send out a link to the crowdfunding page that people have opened for them. So if anyone has some extra ties and wants to do a mitzvah, they're truly a worthy cause uh, to help. Um, so this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion, it's a little scary. Those curses are long. And it's interesting that the curses are longer than the blessings. There's something so true about that. Just, just that alone. Like when things are going well, okay, things are going well. You're happy. It's like, wee, I'm happy. That's great. You can kind of like max out on how good things can be, right? Like if everything's going really well, it's going well, right? But when it comes to messing things up in life, like there's really no limit to how bad things can get. No matter how bad things are, they really can always get worse. I'm sure you've all been in situations where you're thinking to yourself, whew, this is really bad. And then something else happens and you're like, huh, I thought it was tough yesterday, but look at that. It got even worse. I can say this as a divorce lawyer. There's really no end. There's no limit to how messed up things can get. I'm sure you guys all know Tolstoy's, you know, famous line that all happy families are alike and each happy, unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, it's just, it's just so evident through this portion. Some religious views are like, oh, love, you know, just love God. Everything will be fine. You'll be prosperous. And that's super important. That's here in the portion. But the flip side is you also have to have awe of God, fear of God. Be careful because the things that you do matter. And if you try to jiggle things around your own way and you don't follow the path, the straight path, the commandments, watch out. Those curses are scary. And there are a lot more of them than the blessings. So I'm reading the curses. And when you read them, I'm thinking, well, I don't want that to happen to me. That's pretty bad. And so how do you not have that happen? Right? So 
In chapter 28, verses 45 to 47, we start getting an explanation. This is what will cause you to get the curses. And it says, these curses will befall you and destroy you because you did not obey the Lord your God to observe his commandments and statutes which he commanded you. Fair enough. And they will be as a sign and a wonder upon you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with happiness and with gladness of heart when you had an abundance of everything. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like a contradictory explanation for why we're getting the curses? In verse 45, it sounds like you didn't follow the commandments, so you're going to be cursed. Fair enough. You didn't do the Torah, you get punished. Could have been left at that. But then verse 47 rolls in, and that seems to be bringing a different explanation. It says, because you did not serve the Lord with happiness and gladness of heart. Now, that verse can be understood in a lot of ways, and the interpreters have uh, you, know, you know, brought many amazing and important interpretations. But on its face, it would just seem to mean that you were doing the commandments. You were worshiping Hashem, but you did it without gladness. Why is that obvious? Because if you weren't following the commandments, then 45 would be enough. It says you didn't follow the commandments, you get punished, right? The least of Hashem's worries, if you were already not following the commandments would be your lack of gladness, right? You're not, Hashem's not going to be worried about teaching you the proper emotional internal disposition while you're sinning. Just don't sin. The proper disposition is what you're supposed to be thinking and feeling internally when you're doing the good things. So it seems like two opposite explanations. Are the curses coming to you for not following the commandments? Or is it that you follow the commandments? You went to the synagogue, you kept Shabbat, you said the blessings, you said the prayers, but you didn't accompany it with the appropriate emotional feeling with the appropriate gladness. Which one is it? The first one seems to intuitively be more appropriate and make sense, doesn't it? Because otherwise it would be a little bit harsh. Like there are commandments that are hard. We had this um, this morning, we had a Bedouin Arab in our garden today and he looked at one of our fruit trees and it was just packed with beautiful fruits. And he said, well, why aren't you picking and eating them? And I said to him, well, we planted them only two and a half years ago. We can't eat from them until the fourth year. We don't, uh, you know, the Bible says not to eat the fruits in the first three years. And he says, you just leave the fruits there? You do that for Allah? I was like, well, I guess, I guess you could say that. I guess you could say that. That's fair, fair enough, right? And it's not so hard to not eat those fruits because I could just go buy other fruits in the supermarket, but it's kind of hard. And imagine how hard it was in a time when you didn't have supermarkets in the biblical times, right? That was hard. It's not obviously easy to be happy when you're doing that. You might be sad to see the fruit go to waste. Would you deserve all those curses though? Would you be deserving of all those horrible things happening to you? Like I asked my kids a question a couple weeks ago. As you guys know, we were traveling the States and there were some snacks that we weren't quite accustomed to in like the gas station convenience markets. Our favorite one was fried pork fat. And it would say on the side, like in this little star, with the skin attached, like, oh, the, you know, the fried pig fat, that's nice. But with the skin attached, that's a real selling point. Now, that's not a snack you see every day in Israel. And the kids are like, gross, right? And I said to them, what's a higher level? Someone who's grossed out by the thought of eating fried pig fat with the skin attached because he's aligned with Hashem's will. He's not even attracted to that. He's not drawn to that. And then he doesn't eat it. Or someone who actually that looks delicious to them. Maybe they were raised eating that and they really want to eat it, but they hold back. And even if it's hard for them, even if they're sad, they said, Hashem doesn't allow it. I'm so sad. It's so hard, but I'm not going to do it. And all the kids were unanimous. They said the guy who wants to eat it, but doesn't eat it, he's on a higher level. So that's like the simple intuition that even children have. 
But the main thing is to follow the commandments. If you do it happily, great. But even if it's really hard and you're really unhappy, cool, good. You're working on yourself. You're trying to get better. You don't deserve curses. So it's a little bit hard to understand this verse 47. It touches on this ongoing argument that Jeremy and I have. He thinks that things should be fun and easy. I come from a school of thought that says if you're not suffering, you haven't really done the commandments yet. Like when I was growing up, if you're cleaning for Pesach, for Passover, and you haven't had a nervous breakdown yet, are you sure your house is clean? The way Jeremy does things is totally different. He makes things fun. Every year when he cleans the floors for Passover, he throws a bunch of soapy water down the hallway. The kids have like this indoor slip and slide. They put on bathing suits. They're sliding down, trying to break their necks. So in our argument, I'm kind of like verse 45, the main thing, do the commandments. You don't do the commandments, the curses are going to come on to you. Jeremy's a little bit more like verse 47. He says the main thing is to worship Hashem with joy. If you don't have the joy, you haven't really done it properly. So when reading the verses this year, even though I've read them a million times, this new understanding popped out at me. Tell me what you guys think. Maybe verse 45 is the explanation of why you get the curses. But verse 47 explains why verse 45 happens. Meaning, yes, it's very harsh to bring down curses for someone not being joyous enough. So the curses are for the people who are in the verse 45 category. Hey buddy, you coming to learn Torah with me? This is Noam. The curses, you wanna say hi? Yeah, but Noam, I'm bored. You're bored? So you're gonna wait one minute until I finish, okay buddy? Uh, okay. So, they, if you're 45, you abandoned all the commandments, right? But why would you abandon all the commandments, right? 45, you abandon the commandments, you get the curses. But why did you even do that? Maybe that's why we have 47. 47 says, how did you get to a situation where you want to abandon all the commandments? Jeremy's probably smiling now because this is giving him ammo in our argument. But what it seems to be saying to me is that the curses are for those who abandon the commandments, but people abandon the commandments because they were doing the commandments without a joyful heart. Sometimes joy seems to me like a luxury, right? Sometimes at the end of the day, I look at Jeremy, he's pretty relaxed, he's in a good mood, he's on the couch, Lord knows he does a lot, he manages the farm and the fellowship and a million other projects with his, uh, you know, here and there. And at the end of the day, I kind of look and feel like a, like a tattered rag doll. That's how I feel. Like I pushed myself to the limit, to the breaking point, and I'm crashing into my bed. So you can do that. But maybe that's where I was teaching you that you can only do that for so long. If you do the commandments without a joyful heart, you're doing them. But is it sustainable? Are you going to be consistent if you don't have a happy heart? And if you do think it's sustainable for you, like you can say, I don't care. I'm going to drudge through the commandments. I'll do them. Is it going to speak to your children? Is that going to speak to you, Noah? No. I don't think it's going to speak to you, right? Are they going to want to do it? Are children going to want to do something that doesn't look joyful? So maybe it's teaching us that there's a chain reaction to expect when we allow the joy element to slip away. This is really powerful for me because we're in Elul planning how we want to be next year. And I sometimes mistakenly have this tendency, I bet some of you ladies can relate with this, to wear hardships like a badge of honor. Like it's Friday afternoon, I'm getting ready for Shabbat and I say to Jeremy, oh, I've been on my feet all day and the kids have been nagging me and my clothes are all smudged up. Like Hashem has been giving me some sort of trophy for having killed myself to make Shabbat. What if the verse is teaching us that's not the only way to do things? Maybe that's not going to last and maybe that's not going to be sustainable over generations. So maybe this Elul, not just a time to think of new commandments that I want to take upon myself, but to plan out how can I take the things that I'm already doing and add a little extra spice of joy so I can look forward to them and my children and the other people around me 
can say, hey, I want some of the Torah that she's living. What's, you know, what's the Kool-Aid that she's drinking? I want some of that. Maybe there'll be one less dish for Shabbat. Well, I've cooked it listening to some really uplifting music and dancing around the kitchen. What if I clean for Pesach and I put on my bathing suit and slip and slide down the hall when Jeremy spills that bucket? Okay, maybe we don't need me to go off in a, in a wheelchair, right? We don't need me in an ambulance. No, but you get the picture, right? So maybe that would be enough to motivate and inspire us and our children to be extra careful in keeping the commands because we associate them with joy and positivity. Okay, Jeremy, now you can wipe the smile off your face just because you're right one time doesn't mean anything. And just remember that I'm right most of the time, okay? Bye, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> Thank you, Noam, for that cameo. <laughs> I think that is exactly in tune. You know, the high holidays are serious, and it's like the Torah portion is here as an eternal reminder. You know, you got to have fun. You got to have joy. You need to enjoy the ride. And so I have a surprise for everyone here at the fellowship. So many people have asked me for an update from the Arugot farm. What's new? What's being built? What's being, what's happening? You know, and there's some people in this fellowship that are literally lovesick with Israel. They miss Israel so much. So I made a short video for you, but it's not just an update and it's not just a video. It's a full blown Judean extravaganza. It's a wedding like I've never seen before. It was the first wedding we've ever hosted out here on the mountain. We expected 700 people to show up. It, it turns out that almost a thousand people came. <laughs> the timing, nothing less than a spice cart from above. You know, Rosh Hashanah, the day of the shofar, the day of remembering. The first time we ever remember hearing the shofar in the Torah was at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 19. This is the first shofar that we know about. The sound of the shofar grew continually much stronger. Moses would speak and God would respond to him with a voice. So this holiday has so many dimensions, but one of them is to bring us back to when Israel made God king at Sinai, the greatest inauguration of all times. But we weren't like subjects crowning the king. Sinai was our chuppah. And at that moment in time, Israel married themselves to the king in an eternal covenant. And so how timely, right before Rosh Hashanah, we hosted our first wedding. So enjoy this short journey into the heart of the mountains of Judea, into a Judean celebration like no other. Oh my goodness. We've never had a wedding here before, but that's what's happening here. The Arugot farm is alive. <laughs> the whole place looks unbelievable. Right behind me here, there's the bride. Over there, being built, is our first chuppah overlooking the mountains of King David all the way down to the Dead Sea. Our public bathrooms are finished literally the day of the wedding. I mean, they're not pretty just yet, but they're functioning, and I guess that's all we need. Look what's going on behind me here. I mean, it's an entire encampment. There are lights that are being strewn from our house of prayer all the way down the big area there i mean we have to go down there to check this out it's it's I, people have been working on this now the entire week yossi one of the original partners of the arugot farm was really in charge of all of the agriculture the working the building his oldest daughter is getting married and we said where else would we rather have our wedding than here and so i mean this dead mountain has truly come to life and you just can't believe Look at this, all the things here below. Look, there's all the tables. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Come on, we're gonna go down there and I'm gonna show you more. Okay, we're right now at the heart of the property. 
behind me, our educational center that's under construction that's really moving along quite nicely. And then behind me here, this is gonna be the band. We put these huge big piles of hay there. There's gonna be a men's section here, a women's section for dancing on the other side. Over here is one tent for food. Down there, another tent for food. There's light. I mean, I, I in the, at nighttime here last night when they first turned on the lights, it was like a magical awakening of this mountain. And so it's all happening now. Look, I think there's, I think 140 tables that are set up just here, but then there's also tables that are set up down there and more tables that are set up down there. There are gonna be 700 people at this outdoor wedding here tonight. And uh, look at this. Oh, I'm sorry. These aren't tables. They're tables that are kind of Bedouin style tents, like old school, old school Judean, <laughs> I don't know. But they're all across the bottom part here. I mean, this is going to be a wedding like no other. And so I'm gonna do my very best to document the whole thing for you guys because this is the first time we've ever held a real gathering of spirit in such a huge way before on this farm. So right now, the Kala and the Khatan both go on their separate ways and they pray the last prayer before their chuppah and they pray it as if it's the day of Yom Kippur. Full atonement, total renewal, rebirth, a new life. And all of her girlfriends are all waiting around for her now. And soon they'll return and there'll just be a moment where all of them are just praying together and all of the, the husband's friends are praying together. And um, we'll go and visit the husband in just a little bit. But this is what it looks like here. Okay, so now we're going over to where the Khatan is, to where the groom is. He chose to have his place in our house of prayer, and I'm sure it's just gonna be spectacular. Okay, I'm looking inside here right now. Okay, what's happening right now, the parents are sitting together now, and they're going over the wedding contract. It's like two families coming together, and all their friends are here. They're playing music. So this is what's happening now. Khatan is done, contracts are signed, families are coming together, and now we're gonna dance the Khatan to go and meet his bride, who he hasn't seen for seven days. And I think in some ways this is really the climax of the wedding. It's like so romantic and so beautiful. <laughs> so watch this. <laughs>
night, so now we're dancing at the Tanjana I mean, the weather here couldn't be nicer. The sun is setting in the mountains here. And now the Fupa begins. tell you how much fun we had it was just the mountain came to life <laughs> i mean for that night there was no corona there was no afghanistan there was no hamas there was no nothing there was just absolute prophecy being fulfilled in the mountains of judea the voice of a husband the voice of a wife the joy and the happiness i mean it was like something out of uh, legends and fairy tales. It was unbelievable. And you know, the high hall holidays are ahead of us. And that just brought such a spirit that's kind of with us now. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And the more that we prepare ourselves, like in marriage, in life, the more we build our vessels, the more light we can contain. You know, Western holidays, they have like holiday sales. And Torah holidays, we have spiritual work in preparation. It's a little bit of a different scale. And, you know, one of the funniest things that happened to us in America when Tahil and I took the kids to a campsite for Shabbat on our last trip. And, you know, I always try to take the opportunity to talk with whoever I can, just constantly gleaning, looking for messages, looking for angels that might be sent to me. And you never know who might be sent your way. So I was looking for some lighter fluid to start a bonfire that we could all sit around Friday night. And I met this older man and I asked him, hey, where are you from? And he said, I live here now. And I said, really? <laughs> I spend my whole year hoping to take my children camping for the highlight of their summer. And it's the best time of our year. And you get to live here all year round. Oh, he loved that. <laughs> he loved that. So I asked him, so what do you do? And he said, well, I've been working for 50 years and now I do absolutely nothing. <laughs> And I was so thrilled <laughs> with what he said. I was like, the man lives in Shabbat all the time. <laughs> that's amazing. I don't know if that's the best way to live, but I'm always busy doing, traveling, building, running, going. And I felt like that man was sent right to me just to, hey, you should know. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. A whole Shabbat. I'm like, wow, he's doing absolutely nothing. That's so deep. I'm still thinking about that guy. And, you know, we're having our Friday night meal outside by the bonfire. And Tila says, Jeremy, can you go inside and get the ketchup from inside our cabin? And I said, Tahila, 
We've been married for 19 years and now I'm doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you can imagine <laughs> she really loved that one. <laughs> but, you know, doing nothing is easy. You know, it's uh, working on yourself, growing, drawing closer to good, drawing closer to God. It's a service. It's work. But in that work is joy and happiness and fulfillment and blessing. And that is a promise in the Bible that we're going to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And I've been, you know, I've just seen that true in my whole life. And with every person that I've ever met, people that are always working to grow, to become better, they're just happier people. They're more blessed people. That's just the promise of the Bible. And Rosh Hashanah, the shofar is a wake-up call. And, you know, Maybe we took a break during the summer. Maybe we weren't eating everything we should have been eating. And it's a call to duty. It's like the king is calling his shoulders back to service. The shofar is our alarm clock to wake us up. And we're actually told it's blown to wake us up, to remember. And that's why the day is called Yom Hazikaron. There is a beautiful ancient Judean parable in the Midrash. A king loves his subjects very much. And he invites all of his kingdom to his palace because he wants to meet each and every person one-on-one -on -one individually. And the king loves his people and is overwhelmed with love. He made the most amazing happening in his palace. Every kind of food, drinks, everything was served, entertainment, jesters, magicians, clowns for the children, live music played by musicians from around the world, wild animals were brought to make sure everyone just had the best time. And as the sun was setting, the king's knights all got together and blasted the shofar together all around the courtyards of the palace. And the blast startled people. They all got lost in the distractions, the entertainment, the music, the drinking, the feasting. They forgot why they were invited to the palace. They were brought to the palace to meet the king one-on-one. -on -one, and they got lost in all the distractions of the world. And sometimes we forget. In Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar to remember. We make God the king of our lives, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, we all forget. I have a terrible memory. I have such a bad memory. I went to the doctor to get pills to help me have a better memory, but I keep on forgetting to take them. Ah! <laughs> it's so funny. I see some people laughing and some people like very like lovingly concerned, like, oh, Jeremy, you're taking pills. No, that's a joke. I'm memory pills, but I forget to take them. <laughs> I just love you guys. <laughs> that's a joke. All right. Anyway, if only I had a good memory, if only we all had a good memory. I mean, that really is the key to life. It's true. It's like, ah. Uh, if I could only remember the way Tehillah looked at me under the chuppah, I would be a greater husband. If only I could remember the moment Eden was born, I would be a much better father. It's like so often we're just on autopilot. We're just doing what we're doing because that's what we do. That's, that's what it means to be asleep. The shofar is the ultimate wake-up call. It's like an end to the endless domino effect you know we'll get to that in a little bit you know just um a, a rabbi told me this funny story you know, a, a jews have all these funny stories as they're traveling through the world and you know tsa they're just you know they never know what to do with us and so um i remember one time that i got pulled aside in a random selection and uh the guy man was like excuse me sir what are what are those and i'm, I'm just talking to my strings outside of my shirt <laughs> and i wanted to be like so you know stand back, stand back, my lasers, you know, I, but I didn't want to spend the night in prison, but I, you know, I didn't want to tell him, like, this is my tzitzit, it's like, um, 
It's our reminder to be good, to remember God. And my rabbi told me this funny story. He was traveling around America and uh, he had two different shofars. He had a big shofar and a little shofar and he was going around teaching about Rosh Hashanah. TSA officer stopped him. He said, excuse me, sir, what are those? And then he wanted to like pull out an anti-Semitic joke and be like, these are my horns. <laughs> I've been hiding them. <laughs> but he didn't say that because he didn't want to spend his night in prison either. But um, actually what he did say, he said, these are my alarm clocks. They help me wake up the people that I'm teaching. And I think that is exactly what the shofar is here for. It's like to understand this time and the opportunity that this time offers spiritually, I think it's best to really think of it as dominoes. It's like dominoes are falling and pushing us wherever they're directed. Just autopilot without a pilot. It's like so much of life, so much of how we feel, so much of how we act. What we do is like a result of the past. Dominoes fall and they just keep on knocking into the next one in this endless chain reaction. This actually happened to me one morning when I was still jet lagged. I woke up in the morning, like late morning. I stubbed my toe on my way to brush my teeth. I yelped. I woke up to Gila because I yelped in pain. She got mad at me because I finally, she finally fell asleep and I just woke up by my clumsiness. I walked out of my bedroom and my children were playing some kind of loud game and I raised my voice at them. And because they were you know, going to wake up everyone else and then I, they got all sad and then I felt really guilty about being a bad father. And then I poured my coffee and I missed and like just spilled on my, onto my hand, the hot water, just like one domino effect after the other. But a lot of life is just like that. It's just like, you know, we bring the luggage of yesterday into our day today and the baggage of last month into the next month. And Rosh Hashanah is the ultimate halt. It's the most auspicious time to stop whatever dominoes have been falling and start a new chain reaction toward the new year. And that's the purpose of this time. That's the purpose of teshuva. Let get our light, our life in realignment, return to ourselves, return to the path that we want to be on, chart a new course and start a new chain reaction. To, in a direction that we've thought about, that we've prayed about, a direction that we've chosen. It's not letting the world around us dictate our direction, but it's proactively charting a new course for our lives. How do we do that? So the Rambam, Maimonides, one of the great sages of Israel, put it like this. Rosh Hashanah, we stop the play of our life, the movie of our life. We edit it and we stop. We've made it this far. How are we doing? If the movie of our life ended right now, would we be happy with what we've done with our lives? It's like Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin, a judgment day. When we make God king, the king is the ultimate judge. And on this day, we take stock of our own. It's like our own self-reflection. What have we done right? What have we done wrong? This is the time to set it all right again. It's like on one hand, we wanna have a vision and a dream for the coming year and set these dominoes in the right direction. But the best way is to crown the king, not yourself. Don't ask what you want from the king in the new year, but ask what does the king want from us? It's like, you know, this year has spun us all around. It's like everyone is a little bit dizzy. And it's like, how do you overcome dizziness? You focus on one thing. You keep your sight on one and everything else straightens out. Rosh Hashanah, we aim toward heaven and aim at the ultimate one. And that's going to straighten us all out. And I know some people are saying, Ugh, I just don't know what God wants for me. That's so much. That's beyond me. That's too much. The whole thing is just too confusing. It's overwhelming. So 15 kilometers at a time. What's the next first good step? Advice given to us from King David in the book of Psalms in chapter 34. 
Who is the man who loves life, who loves days and sees good? Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What is King David saying is here? Sur merah, stay away from bad. Right now, think of one thing that you're doing that's harming you, that's blocking you, that's stifling your growth, that's bringing curses into your life. Just one thing. Stop doing it. Whatever we're doing that's harming us, turn away from evil and do good. What's one habit that if you adopted that one habit, you would just have the best benefit in your life? Maybe it's waking up early. Maybe it's your diet. Maybe it's your exercise. Maybe it's reading, meditating, praying. I mean, there's so many good habits that we need to adopt. One good thing, just one. Do it. Turn away from the bad turn toward the good, strengthen what we're doing that's bringing blessings, turn away from what's bringing us curses. This is the time, just one step, rethink. It's time to remember now, to renew. And for all of you that had your journals, if you have your journals in front of you, this is the time. Right now, just from your gut, what's the one bad thing that you're doing that if you stopped that one bad thing, your life would be a heck of a lot better. And what's the one good thing you could adopt that you could change that would be like, wow, you know what? That's just going to bring my life to a whole new level. You can change your mind later, but just right now, what comes out of your heart? Just write it down. Sometimes what comes up just first is a really good gauge. It's the first 15 kilometers on our way to reach the South Pole. Just one step in the right direction toward the good. And it's like now more than ever, this time in the calendar is calling us to go inside, to find God in our lives. And I know that some people say like, I just don't know what that means. And I don't know how to do that. But the Hebrew tradition teaches us through Rosh Hashanah that you actually do. You just need to remember. There's an ancient Midrash based on the mystical writings. They say that while a baby is in the womb, an angel comes and teaches him everything that there is to know. The entire Torah, all of the truths of the world. And then right before he's born, the baby knows everything. And the angel comes and touches him right above his lip and under his nose. And right as he's born, he forgets it all. And it's like, what? Why would the angel teach him everything only to then make him forget everything? It's like it's such deep wisdom here. The Judean wisdom is saying teaching the true education isn't learning. It's remembering. When you hit upon a truth, you'll know it because you already know it. You knew it before you were even born. And now you just rediscovered, you just remembered. It's Yom HaZikaron. You're now remembering what you've always known. It's actually inside us. We have that ability to already really know. And I know what I need to know. We all know what we need to know. Our challenge in this world is that we need to remember. That's why Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembering. The inner work that needs to be done for the new year is always expressed in the first three pages of my journal. And this work accompanies me throughout the whole year. Those three pages are with me. I may go through five journals in one year, but those three pages come with me all throughout. You know, the first page, I have the verses, the scriptures, my mantras, who I want to be, reminders of what I want to manifest in the world through my being, the scriptures that are my inspiration, my reminders. The second page we discussed last time, what are the ingredients that I want in my life that are beyond my career? The ingredients that make up my inner world, that make life worth living. The third page, we're going to discuss that right before Yom Kippur. But Tehillah was sharing with me a verse 
that struck her from the Sidur on Friday night. And I'm going to be adding it to my first page. And I just wanted to share it with you. And here's the verse from the Sidur from the Friday night service. The song is called Yadid Nefesh. It's a love song to God. And it says, Maher Ehov Kivamoed. Fast, quickly, love. It's like commanding. Quickly, love. Kivamoed, for the time is coming. For the time has come. And Tila's like, you know, we just never know when our time is going to come. Love quickly, fast, don't wait. Quick, just love. Spread more love in the world. Spread more light in the world. Be fast, don't hesitate. Go, because the time has come. The time has come, the time is coming, and we don't have any other time. Quickly, just spread more love, spread more light. This is the time to wake up. It's the time to remember. It's the time to realign our dominoes and set them in the direction that we want. And love is at the core of that. Quick, fast, love, the time has come. We have no idea. Don't waste on a hating. Don't waste our time on anger. Fast, love. Call who you need to call before Rosh Hashanah. Hug who you need to hug before Rosh Hashanah. Quick, fast, love, the time is coming. The shofar is calling us to remember what really matters in life. And dear fellowship, may you all be blessed to remember what really matters in life. May you be grateful to know that you're blessed beyond measure with everything that you have. Quick, love, the time is coming. May you enjoy every blessing and know that you're blessed from Zion. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichunecha. We're going to go into this Israel together. We're going to go into this year blessed. Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.